to in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 10 and verse 1. This is now an 84-year-old Daniel. He has not gone back. He is still in Babylon. He is a very old man. That could be why he decided not to go back, but obviously God has more for him as he gives him this vision. So in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, we see this word, I think, once in the book of Daniel, a revelation, which means an unveiling, that's what revelation means, was given to Daniel, who, is, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, Daniel mourned for three weeks. So it is a vision from heaven. He is already multiple times, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8. He is given the history of the kingdoms that will rule over the Jews between Daniel, including Babylon, Medo-Persia, which has just taken over in Daniel 9, and is now we're in the third year of the Medo-Persian Empire. Greece is going to then take over, and then Rome, and then the revived Roman Empire. So Daniel sees a vision with a great war, and he is looking at Armageddon from earth in a vision. He is looking at the end of the times of the Gentiles. So the book of Daniel covers prophetically the times of the Gentiles, Luke 21, 24, which goes with the captivity of Daniel till the return of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation. Well, right before the return of Christ, there is a three-and-a-half-year period, which is really in itself a war that culminates in Revelation 16, about verse 15, with Armageddon, this plain and mountain field that George Patton in World War II called the greatest war arena that he had ever seen on earth, the greatest place for a war. And he is looking at Mount Megiddo, where Josiah died, which is where Jesus will return to earth and fight against the nations. Seeing what is going to happen in Jerusalem in the last three and a half years of the tribulation makes Daniel ill. So we read about it through Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We read about it all through the book of Revelation. We see how it ends, that Christ comes and conquers. But Daniel is seeing this three and a half year period and he is seeing Armageddon. And we know that because chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12 are all about the tribulation, and they focus on the second half. So if we look at chapter 12, for example, we see um, verse 1, At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of the nations until then, but at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. So we see this horrible time drop down to verse 7 in chapter 12. Understand again that chapter 10, 11, and 12 were all the same vision. So in the same vision, this 
great war he talks about at the beginning of chapter 10, verse 7 in chapter 12 says, the man clothed in linen, we will address who that is later today, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left toward heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, it will be for a time, times, and half a time when the power of the holy people has finally broken, all these things will be completed. So Daniel is seeing this three and a half year period, which Jeremiah calls a time of Jacob's trouble. This most horrible time in history, nothing to compare it to. He is seeing it, and he is seeing it in relationship to Israel. Now, I mentioned of what's going on during this time that Daniel is getting this vision. I want us to go to the book of Ezra. Ezra, we're going to look at chapter 3. We'll take a peek at chapters 1 and 2 to see exactly what is going on. So we've been studying Daniel 9 the last two weeks. In Daniel 9, the vision that he sees of the 77s sends Ezra back to... Um, rebuild the temple, we see that um, in his 77s, Nehemiah is the one that that relates to going back to build the streets and a trench, but between Nehemiah and Daniel, Ezra goes back to reestablish worship in year 70. So we see in um, the first, in chapter 1, verse 1, the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that's Daniel chapter 9 is the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, and Daniel chapter 6. We see, beginning in chapter 2, the list of all the people that went back with Ezra, with Zerubbabel, and with um, Joshua the high priest to rebuild the temple. When we come to chapter 3, we are now in 536 B.C., which is the same year that Daniel is given the vision of Daniel 10, 11, and 12. So we look at what's going on in Jerusalem while Daniel 10 is happening in Babylon, in Persia. Verse 1 of chapter 3 in Ezra. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, the son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, Joshua is the high priest that we see in Zechariah chapter 3, and Zerubbabel, who is like the governor, the son of Sheatile, and his associates began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear, their constant threat to the trans-Euphrates people, the people from Samaria, are trying to stop this worship. Um, Satan is behind them, and with this fear, they continue forward. Verse 3, despite their fear, the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation, where Solomon built, and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices, then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of the Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings and that pre prescribed each day. 
So they're primarily focused on, as they go back with Ezra to rebuild the, the temple, the, the ceremony, the feast that is the focus of their return is the Feast of Tabernacles. If you remember what the Feast of Tabernacles is for, it is the seventh of seven feasts, so that when they came out of Egypt and they finally arrived in what is Palestine today, what was um, the Canaanite land territory, it was the promised land. So when they got over the Jordan and they got into and occupied the promised land, they celebrated the peace, the feast of the tabernacles, which is the feast of booths. They did that and they do this if you had cameras in Jerusalem this year during this feast in their seventh month, you would see on top of all the buildings all of these tents they would look like to us. It is the Feast of Booths that they are celebrating. They are doing two things. They are remembering that they were nomads and travelers arriving in the Promised Land that God had delivered them from Egypt taking them into the promised land, and they're also anticipating the millennium. So whenever they celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles, that's what they are doing. And we're going to look at that from Scripture a little bit, but let's finish the chapter here first. Verse 5, After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings and the new moon sacrifices and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, all seven of them. But this is in the seventh month, so they're celebrating for three of them, as well as those who brought freewill offerings from the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord through the foundation of the Lord's temple. Had... Excuse me, let me read that verse again. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had yet been laid. So the temple isn't built yet, but it's really important to them that, they, that in the seventh month, in the 70th year, that they celebrate these three festivals. These three festivals anticipate the end of the times of the Gentiles. Does anybody know what they celebrate on the first month, first day of the seventh month, which we're reading here? Rosh Hashanah, which will be the rapture for the church. Then on day 10, they celebrated Yom Kippur, which will be the return of Christ to earth at the end of the tribulation. And then they celebrated the Feast of the Tabernacles. Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 23 for a minute, where all seven of these feasts are found in one chapter. So in Daniel 9.24, we see these six things that God has to accomplish. He's going to accomplish them in um, 490 years, 77s. So three of them he accomplished when he went to the cross. We see all um, seven of these feasts, six of them have to do with the things that he is talking about in Daniel 9. We see that in order down through the, the passage here, we see the Sabbath dealt with initially. And then beginning in verse 4, 
we see the Passover, which is when Jesus died on the cross. And it tells you that that's the twilight of the 14th day of the first month. The first spiritual month begins, on the spiritual year begins on the seventh month. Here is their actual first month. Then we see the first fruits in verse 9, which is the exact day they're celebrating with Moses that Jesus rose from the dead. So on Passover, we see Jesus die at the exact time in the afternoon, on the exact day, on the exact month that was given to Moses 1,500 years before. We worship today on Sunday because in the law of Moses, the first fruits is the first feast fulfilled on Sunday. So on Sunday, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. So when he rises from the grave, he fulfills first fruits given to Moses. So we worship on what we call the Lord's Day because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday morning after he was in the grave. Then we see in verse 15 the festival of weeks, which is known as Pentecost, penta meaning 50, and that's when the Holy Spirit came to earth and indwelled believers, and we'll see that being announced ahead of time by Jesus on the Feast of Tabernacles. Then in verse 23, the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, on the first day of the seventh month, we just read that in Ezra, that's when they began worship when they went back to Jerusalem. You are to have a day of rest, a Sabbath rest, a sacred assembly um, commemorated with trumpet blasts, do no regular work, but present a food offering to the Lord. So when they come back from Babylon, the first thing they celebrate is Rosh Hashanah, Feast of the Trumpets. That is their first celebration, and they want to start instituting worship with that day. One that isn't mentioned is the 10th day in Ezra. They would have also celebrated this. The Lord said to Moses, the 10th day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. How do you say Day of Atonement in Hebrew? Yom Kippur. Yom is day, Kippur is atonement. So the Day of Atonement is celebrated on the 10th day of the seventh month. So that would have been the second festival that they would have celebrated. They're celebrating the progression of the return of Christ. For the church, it's Rosh Hashanah. For Israel, it's Yom Kippur. For completion, it is Feast of Tabernacles. In the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus will be physically on a throne in Jerusalem. All animals will be herbivores. There will be peace across the whole planet. It will be like the Garden of Eden, and it will be the fulfillment of every promise made to Israel. So as we drop down to verse 33, in Leviticus 23, the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites on the 15th day of the seventh month, the Lord's festival of tabernacles begins and it lasts for seven days. So we are pointed to by Ezra, the Feast of Tabernacles. They are certainly thinking about coming to the promised land for the first time. They're now back from Babylon to the promised land for the second time, and they're undoubtedly thinking about the promised land that lies ahead 
which is the end of the times of the Gentiles, which we are studying in Daniel. Turn in your Bibles to Zechariah, the second to the last book in the Old Testament. In Zechariah chapter 14, there is more Messiah prophecies in Zechariah than any book in the Bible. Um, and here we progress in this chapter from Armageddon to the millennium. And we're reading about the millennium when we drop down to verse 16 of Zechariah chapter 14, where it says, Then the survivors from all the nations, these are the people saved from every nation, tribe, people, and language, um, in Revelation, then the, the survivors of all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the festival of the tabernacles. Um, there's, there's so much apologetics in this verse. Um, if a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, for example, they will say that this chapter is about Jesus, and in this chapter it says the King the Lord Almighty. And they will tell you that Jesus is not God Almighty, and in this chapter he is called God Almighty multiple times. But we're being told here that in the millennium, the feast that will be required of every person on earth is the Feast of the Tabernacles because it represents the millennium. It was prophetic to the millennium when Moses received it in Zechariah, its reality. So the promises to Israel are fulfilled. Turn in your Bibles back to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah, in a couple of verses, gives us the first and second coming of Christ, what he will say and what he will do when he comes both times. So we're going to read more than Christ reads when he picks up the scroll in Nazareth, and then we'll go to Nazareth to see what he did read. In chapter 61 of Isaiah, in verse 1, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and released from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops right there. And he is in Nazareth reading to his hometown synagogue, people that are familiar with him, and he stands up and he asks the attendant for the scroll. They have all respected him as a teacher at this time, and they're all fixed on him. What's he going to read? What's he going to tell us about? And he reads this, um, and he stops in what we have as the middle of verse 2, and he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor, which to a Jew is jubilee. Every 50 years, they have a year of jubilee, which brings the favor of the Lord back to everyone in Israel, and everyone gets all of their property back if they have been in debt at that time. Jubilee in its fulfillment is the millennium, which is the year of the Lord's favor. So he is proclaiming this, Jesus is, when he comes. 
Interestingly enough, in Ezra chapter 3, when they reestablish worship in God's magnificent calendar, they celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles 70 years after Daniel was taken captive and 50 years after the temple was destroyed. So they are effectively celebrating the Jubilee when they come back to Jerusalem, the year of the Lord's favor, and they're focused on the Feast of the Tabernacles, which is the ultimate Jubilee, which is the year of the Lord's favor. Turn now, I'd say I want to read a little bit more. Notice in verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, first coming, Second coming is necessary if they reject him, and they do. And the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn. So we have all three in one verse. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the gospel through Jesus Christ. And the day of vengeance of our God, this war that Daniel is being given in Daniel chapter 10. And then the millennium, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Turn now to Luke chapter 4 as Jesus quotes from this chapter. Luke chapter 4 Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth. He asks the attendant for a scroll, and it is handed to him. We pick it up, Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Notice he is quoting directly from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news. What's the good news word? That's what gospel means. To the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Stop right there, Jesus says. He goes on to say, if you accept me now, there's no need for vengeance. There's no need for a second coming. He knows they're not going to, but what he's offering is the gospel. The year of the Lord's favor, the jubilee of jubilees, the kingdom of God on earth right now, if you accept me. So the first words out of Jesus' mouth in the book of Matthew when he begins his ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And what he's saying there is the king is here and the kingdom of heaven is being offered right now. So when he gets the scroll from Isaiah, he stops right there. A year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And they're in awe. They're thinking, this could be the Messiah. 
This could be the one we've waited for. He grew up here. How can this be? And the day of vengeance isn't proclaimed. And moments later, if you read down the chapter, um, he is preaching now from the Bible, from the Old Testament, and he mentions two Gentiles who accepted him and that the Jews won't. And just a few verses later, they try to kill Jesus. We don't want you as our king. So the rest of Isaiah must be fulfilled. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians actually chapter 6. This isn't in your notes. But this is the Apostle Paul carrying forward the jubilee that is the millennium as he is offering the gospel that Jesus is offering, the good news, in Luke, which is preached from Isaiah. In um, 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 1, um, he says, And God's, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, In the time of their favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. He is carrying forward what Jesus is saying. The year of the Lord's favor. The gospel. Here it is. Right now. The promise of the millennium. The promise of eternal life. The promise of heaven. That's what we're actually offering people. We're offering them an eternal relationship with God. And if we take Jesus at his word in Luke or Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. If I repent, all of this kingdom is mine. It is equally shared with Christ. Um, turn to John now, chapter 7. This is a harsh chapter and a glorious chapter. It is harsh because it begins with Jesus' brothers wanting Jesus to be killed. There is a threat on Jesus' life by this time so that if Jesus appears publicly in Jerusalem, they will kill him. The Pharisees have literally put out a hit on Jesus' life by this time, that if you see him, you let us know and we will deal with him. And his brothers know this, and they're suggesting that he go ahead and go. Verse 1, after this, Jesus went around Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. Know that, verse 1. John is telling us that intentionally to, to then say, but when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see your works, the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. They do, Acts chapter 1, when he raises from the dead. But the feast in play here is the Feast of the Tabernacles. 
It is what they celebrated when they got in the promised land. It is what Ezra is celebrating both the Feast of the Tabernacles and the year of Jubilee when they come back to Jerusalem. Now that same feast is in Jesus' last year. And he wants to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he needs to be in Jerusalem to do that. He knows if they see him coming, they will kill him. So he is going. And he's going on his clock and on his time and when the feast is there. And at the end of the feast, verse 37. This is the same feast that we're talking about in Ezra in Leviticus and in Isaiah and in Zechariah. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and then said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. When we carry this from Moses to Ezra to Daniel to Isaiah to Zechariah to Jesus to Paul, here we see Jesus himself on the Feast of the Tabernacles saying, if any of you are thirsty, come to me. The same thing he said to the woman at the well. If you believe in me, Jesus says, you will have rivers of living water flowing through you. And John the commentator says he meant the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord that was upon him in Nazareth. He is offering that same Spirit to those who believe in him. Exactly what we just read in John chapter 6 today. So Jesus is offering the year of the Lord's favor at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is what they are doing in Jerusalem 500 years before Christ. Now go to Revelation chapter 20, when the Feast of the Tabernacles and the Millennium is the reality. So if we look at the progression from Isaiah, a year of the Lord's favor, it's come. Jesus was here. He died on the cross. Paul, who was a disbeliever, becomes a believer, and he proclaims, 2 Corinthians 6, the year of the Lord's favor, which is, Paul says, right now. This age is the year of the Lord's favor because anyone who believes in Jesus Christ in this age will have rivers of living water flow through them, meaning the Holy Spirit will indwell that person. He talks about that in John chapter 14 as well, and Paul gives us the, theo the theology behind it. So now the millennium comes. Most religion today says there is no millennium. All the promises that we've read have no place to be fulfilled unless Christ comes to reign. Chapter 20 and verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss 
and holding in his hand a great chain, he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. This is the thousand-year reign of Christ. This is why we read Moses writing in Psalm 90, to him a day is like a thousand years. So he is looking at this day of the Lord as a thousand years when Christ will fulfill every promise made to the Jews. And he will come physically to sit on a throne. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Verse 3, he threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended that he might after that he might must be set free for a short time that is another war at the end of the millennium but he will be locked up during the millennium this is what paul is talking about in 1 corinthians 6 verse 4 i saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge who does that include we know it includes the apostles. It's going to include, at, by this point, Jews, like Daniel probably, and it's going to include, to some extent, you and I because of the promises given to us in the church. So I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So now we know it includes tribulation saints. Verse 5, the rest of the dead, and Daniel will address this in Daniel 12, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. So this is the anticipation. This is the hope of glory for a Jew. The hope of glory for you and I is the rapture. When the rapture takes place, we will be with the Lord forever. The hope of glory for a Jew is the millennium, the year of the Lord's favor, the jubilee of jubilees, where Christ himself will sit on David's throne, where people will physically walk through Jerusalem and meet Jesus Christ physically, in person, scars included, glory included, the creator of all things sitting on a throne in Jerusalem. Daniel is seeing in chapter 10 the war that precedes this and it makes him ill. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 10. In Zechariah chapter 14, it says, if there's a particular group of people that decides we will not celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles, it says that God will take their water away. You will die of thirst if you refuse to worship the Feast of the Tabernacles. So it's an important feast, and we see why it was important to Ezra when they went back to Jerusalem. 
Daniel 10 and verse 3. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. So Daniel is so troubled that he bows down before God and basically has fluids to keep him alive, doesn't wash, doesn't put on lotions, doesn't do anything except pray. Cry out to God, putting things in God's hands. Um, We see, as we read on verse 4, On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and his voice was like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So as we inch our way through this, um, there, are, there are two problems in Daniel chapter 10. One of them I won't be able to reconcile. Um, I am in the minority when I conclude at who this individual is. Um, So you are free to disagree with me, um, and it will not change the message that Daniel is bringing us, but I am fully convinced that this individual is Jesus Christ, that he has come down to earth to give Daniel the, the second half of the tribulation, the things that he has seen in visions to this point, There are so many things as we work our way through here that this description is familiar to us, but it's only familiar when it's Jesus Christ. So the first thing we see is the description literally to Daniel's eyes, the man dressed in linen, a belt of gold around his waist, his body like tophaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like like the gleam of burnished bronze and his voice sound and a voice that sound like the, a multitude. All of these are descriptions throughout the Bible of Jesus Christ and no one else. Um, the next thing we see in the next verse is that as this brilliant appearance of Christ appears, everyone with Daniel flees. Can't see it. They're terrified. Where does that sound like? Paul on the road to Damascus, is the only one to see the glory of Christ, and it literally blinds Paul when he sees it, and none of his companions can look at it. So we see the same thing here with Daniel, verse 8. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and I listened to him. I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you and stand up 
for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. So let's look at Daniel chapter 3. Um, if, if we offer as a possibility that it is Christ, it wouldn't be the first time that Christ shows up in the book of Daniel. It wouldn't be the second or the third time. In Daniel chapter 3, we remember the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As far as the eye could see, there's a gold statue. Picture just briefly in your mind, a solid gold statue, 90 feet tall, 10 feet wide. How far away you could see that, especially with the sun gleaming off of it. As far as the eye could see, three people refused to bow. And Nebuchadnezzar likes these three people, so he says, I'm going to give you a second chance. If you'll bow now, um, then I will spare your lives. And, and they say to Nebuchadnezzar, look, we want you to understand that we're not going to bow to your statue. That the God that we worship and serve will deliver us from your hands. And even if he doesn't deliver us from the fire, we want you to know that he is the God of gods. So he makes the fire so hot that when the soldiers throw them into this pit, the soldiers are burned alive. And suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar looks at this burning pit with great amazement. We pick it up in verse 24 of Daniel 3. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men? that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Who is in the fire with these three boys? Christ himself. He followed them into the flames. He did not have to deliver them from the flames in order to be Christ, loving, just, and righteous. But he had to go into the flames to show Nebuchadnezzar who he was. And he did. And he delivers these three faithful men. Go to chapter 6 when Daniel is thrown in the lion's den. Verse, we'll read verse 21 and 22 of Daniel 6. Daniel said, Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in, the, in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. His angel, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, 100% of the time is pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. So God the Father sent God the Son into the flames to rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel, this 80-year-old man, is dropped from a height into hungry lions, and Jesus is there waiting for them, saying, Be still, lions. 
And then we find out that these lions were so hungry that all of the people who had Daniel indicted, they were thrown into there with their wives and kids and they were crushed before they hit the floor. So Colossians 1.17 says that in Christ all things were created and in, in him all things are sustained. The ruler of all creation says to lions, don't harm him. The ruler of all creation says to the, the flames, don't burn them. So Christ has been apparent here. If we turn to chapter 8 and verse 16, we see one that I didn't point out. Verse 15 in chapter 8, we'll start there. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice calling from the Ulai Canal. Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. You can easily read through chapter 8 and think it's just Gabriel with Daniel. And then all of a sudden Daniel says, someone who looked like a man, who looked like a son of the gods to Nebuchadnezzar, and who looks like a man. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 7, where... All throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the most authoritative name given to Christ is Son of Man, and that comes from the book of Daniel. So in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man. That's the authoritative name of many names of Christ in the New Testament, Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He, John 5, here in Daniel 7, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So we know clearest here, this is Christ, creator of all things, ruler of all things, the king of the kingdom, all of those things attributed to Christ here. Now turn to Revelation chapter 1, and it will sound like we are reading Daniel chapter 10. Revelation chapter 1, without question in Revelation 1, we know that we are talking about Christ. The language here is similar to Daniel in Daniel chapter 10. In Revelation 1, beginning in verse 8, Jesus speaking says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Another good Great verse, if someone comes to your door and says that Jesus isn't God, right here he says that he is the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Lord Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in, in suffering and kingdom, John is a companion of you and I in the kingdom, pointing to the millennium, and patient endurance that is ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Remember Revelation 19.10, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Verse 10, on the Lord's Day, Sunday, 
I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. There's one of the descriptions Daniel uses, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was... Daniel chapter 13, one like a son of, or 713, one like a son of man. Then the description is just like Daniel's, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes, like Daniel says, are like blazing fire. And his legs and feet, like Daniel says, verse 15, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 10. So that is a description Daniel is using of this one scene in Daniel 10, and it is a description like no other except Christ in our Bibles. Daniel chapter 10, we pick it up, In verse 12, this is what most people use, most commentators, and you may as well if you choose to, to say that, well, that's not Jesus for this reason. Verse 12, then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom, that's the demon assigned by Satan over Persia, resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. So I don't know exactly what is happening here. I know the picture. I know Daniel drops to his knees. 21 days later, he is told here by, I believe, Jesus Christ, as soon as you started to pray, the answer was given. The message is detained on its way by the prince of Persia, which is the demon assigned to Persia, to the citadel of Susa, to the capital of the Persian Empire, just like there would be not to scare you, there's a demon sign, assigned to the city of Mendota that is resisting God's will on earth. Um, neither of these demons, and we will see the, the prince of Greece later in this chapter, have authority over Christ or even can be compared to him. So the language that describes Christ, I believe, in this chapter leaves me with the conclusion that it is Christ. I don't know exactly how the warfare was carried out. We learn here and we learn from Revelation 12 that, that Michael is stronger than Satan. Michael is Satan's counterpart, not Jesus. Jesus created them both. Jesus is all-powerful. They are limited in power. Michael, who is stronger than any demon, including Satan, is brought into this scene to shove this demon aside. 
what Christ's role there exactly is, it seems to me that he's telling his angels what to do. And he tells Michael, probably since Gabriel isn't strong enough to remove him, Michael, come down and remove this demon at my command. And I believe that that's what happens here. Um, Reading on verse 14. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. For the vision concerns a time yet to come, pointing to the tribulation. Verse 15. While I was saying... While he was saying this to me, I bowed down with my face toward the ground and was speechless. It's interesting in the book of Revelation, I think we'll read it there once today, but several times in the book of Revelation, Revelation 4 and 5, Revelation 19 and other places, John is speaking to an angel and he bows down. And what does the angel say? Don't do that. Get up. I'm a servant just like you are. That's not said here. And I think there's a good reason for it. Because he's bowing to Jesus. He's not bowing to an angel. So we read here, um, reading on, verse 16. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips and opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision. Who? My Lord. And I am feeling very weak. How can I, your servant, he's not a servant to an angel, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, you who are highly esteemed, he said. Peace, be strong now, be strong. I think that is Christ himself with his faithful servant, Daniel, who literally is almost on life support. He is so weak, so distraught. I can't imagine trembling to the place where I go down to the ground and I can't get back up. And multiple times Christ touches him so he can get to his feet. He still can't talk, so he touches his lips so that he can say to him, I'm your servant. I don't have enough strength. You're my Lord. And he says to Daniel, Daniel, peace. Be strong. Be strong. Those aren't words of an angel. Those are words of his king, as I understand them. Verse 18, again, And the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid. How many times are we told that in the Bible? Do not fear. 366 times. You are highly esteemed, he said. Be peace. Be strong now. Be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak my Lord, since you have given me strength. I don't see how that can be anyone other than Jesus. Verse 20. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, 
the prince of Greece will come. But first, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. What is Jesus' name in John beginning? He is the word of God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is going to tell him what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, he says, your prince. So to the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece, the prince of Babylon, the prince of Rome, there is a prince assigned by God that is Michael. And he is stronger than all of them. He is the only one that Christ can assign from heaven to defeat any angel. And we will see that he does that in Daniel chapter 12. Notice in your notes there, um, taking from Revelation 19. In your notes by 14 through 21. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We read about that earlier, verse chapter 20. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. This is an angel speaking to John. But he said to me, do not do, Don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And Daniel is not rebuked for the worship that he addresses in chapter 10. Listen to this statement then. For the spirit of prophecy who bears test, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. Jesus, if you put him on the witness stand, it is the spirit of prophecy that, prophecy that is his testimony. He says to Daniel, Daniel, be strong. Let me explain why I'm here. I'm going to give you from the book of truth what is going to happen in the future. Listen, and then go back to your writing. Write what I give you, and he's going to give him chapter 11 and chapter 12. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for, thank you for a, a, a Bible that could never be put together by human beings. There's no way that Moses and Isaiah and Zechariah and Ezra and Joshua and Daniel and, and John could have collaborated this magnificent story that all points to your son coming back to this earth, sitting on a throne in Jerusalem. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on that um, and help us to be more involved with your Jewish people in doing it. In Jesus' name, amen.